question to begin. Um, but let's begin. Any any prayer requests this morning? My sister-in-law, Iris. Iris, mm-hmm. what's going on? She's been battling cancer for a few years, and she took a turn for for the worse a couple of days ago. So Kevin's actually flying flying out this morning to go see her. How old is she? Sixty-seven. Oh, okay. Um, Debbie, what's your daughter's name? Melissa. Melissa. Anybody else? Sorry. Irene and George. Okay, let's start. And a miracle for Denise. What's that, friend, Linda? Who's full of cancer. They just found it. Just now? I mean, they just. Last week. Last week. Friday. <coughs> she's coming home today. Pancreas, lungs. Oh, wow. Lymph nodes. Wow. How old is she? Maybe 60. All the people in California battling the wildfires. Yeah. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, for the gift of our lives from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass. We carry you and your kingdom in us, a part of your kingdom now. Um, um, (laughs) The joy of that um, comes at a cost because we're asked to carry your cross um, to put away our sins so that we can bring more of your love to everything we do, strengthen us in our efforts to do that. Um, I ask for a blessing in all that we're doing with this reading. Help us to open our eyes, strengthen us in our efforts to be more open ourselves to what we see, and to what it asks us to feel, what it does um, with our hearts. Um, Give us the courage always to put ourselves away, to bring more of you to what we do, to not be afraid, um, to bring you, particularly in our, even in our relationships with each other, uh, but with all those around us. I ask a special blessing on, sorry, Iris. Um, Watch over her, um, surround her with your protection, God, um, let it be so for Denise, too. Um, Whatever burdens they will carry, um, let them always trust in you. If there's a suffering, a cross that they're asked to bear, help them to give themselves to it, to be witnesses to you. Let this be a witnessing for them so that others, they will be strengthened and others will be strengthened by their witnessing. And we offer thanksgiving for Melissa for her surprise recovery um, and the joy that everybody knew from the unexpected results. Um, Be with Irene and George in their recovery. Um, Let things go well with both of them, particularly George. And watch over the people in Northern California. Um, Wherever people are facing these disasters, um, let them learn from them, take care, 
um, but always when we lose our lives and we stop depending on ourselves so much because we discover how dependent we really are when we think we're so self-sufficient, when things are taken away from us, um, let it not be a time for anger or despair, but a turning to you. Um, let it be so for them, let it be so for all of us here. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, I want to do something today that I had wanted to do last time and I didn't. Um, and it comes a little bit, it's a little bit hard for me to do. I feel a little bit awkward doing it because you know how seriously I take these works. I try to keep myself out of them. I mean, I try to present them as they are. So um, coming at them from a perspective that really doesn't speak to them is something that I'm not comfortable doing. I don't know if that was clear. I know there, I know there are teachers who, well, You've heard me say this a lot. I don't think people read very well, and I know, I know from my experiences in, in college that what teachers do with readings, I mean, they make them so much of their own. They, you know, they bring in Freud or Marx or feminist, or they twist them to make them fit their own ideas. They're not reading works to see what's there. I, you, you, you cannot know how important that is to me that we're asked to be open to a thing as it is. That's a real labor. Um, one of the most painful moments in Sound of the Fury is are repeated painful moments or all those instances when people misread Benji. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you can't miss it. And I hope it raises the question, how much misreading do we do? We've got these ideas in our heads and that's the way we see things. So we're, we're looking, it's like the Jewish creation of the idols in the desert. We want, we want to value those things that are projections of our own, instead of learning to see things as they are. Was that clear? Did that help? <laughs> anyway, I'm coming at this with a, with, a, with a question that's really tangential. It doesn't go directly, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So I'm putting myself on a limb. You guys can hang me there. Um, um, why did I come? This whole question about Christ being present that will come to at the very end, I want to put that off into this. Is Christ present if he is where? Over the last couple of weeks, we've had these readings. For those of you who have been in morning mass, you'll know. A couple of weeks ago, there was that reading from the Old Testament where God said, um, I hold the evil man responsible for his sins. If he turns virtuous, if he, if he converts, I can't remember the language, but he will be with me. I mean, I can, if, Vicky, you, I'm, you're he usually at Mass. Huh? He will save his life. You have a die? Nope. He will save his life. Um, but he was saying, woe to you, who, who, the, you who are good, who don't say something to that man and help turn him. And he goes on, this is the Old Testament, I will hold you more responsible was the sort of drift of it. That is, he was saying, we cannot ever get complacent in our own lives. We are called to go out. Um, and um, just recently there was the Good Samaritan with the priest and the Levite walking by the guy. 
And it's interesting to me that they're both religious men. The priest is a priest, the Levite was the holy class. My sense of that reading is, these are two men who were so preoccupied in what they were doing, their calling. And for them it must have been high because they were both religious. They did not see the very thing in front of them. Where were their minds? Where were their hearts? Um, and then this morning, just coincidentally, because this is what I wanted to say anyway, we were on the way to Mass, and Susanna's been reading the, uh, the a collection of passages that Father John Robert and Father Flynn have put together for the conference on Saturday. Um, I think Father John Roberts is going to speak on um, Francis's encyclical, The Joy of the Gospel. I think, did you give Linda the copy, Doc? Yes, yeah. I have it. Yeah. She was, she was just going over it, and I, just in a few words. I, I haven't read the notes. She just started looking at them last night. And, but the gist of that, the notes, was Francis is asking the church to get out of itself, to get out, to go out and evangelize. And he's also asking the church to evangelize within the church. He, he says, we're all called to evangelize priests. How many of us do that? How many of us say the things that we should say to priests? I'm saying this really seriously. Um, I think too often we look at priests as if they're beyond reproach. No, no. <laughs> oh, good, okay, okay. Well, then let me put it, well, if, that's not, if that's the case, how many, how many of you have really been honest and charitable in saying things to priests you should, or we should. Good, good. I just wrote a letter to my pastor. Yeah, good, Don, good. Anyway, Francis's, thanks. Francis's call, I want to say, Francis's call was to evangelize. And, the, and what he was, what, from what Suzanne said, he's concerned about the factions within the church all of, all of which get very self-righteous in what they do. And I thought, I mean, that's not peculiar to the workings within the churches. I think it's peculiar to all of us. Things happen that make us take sides, and then we get very self-righteous in the way that we deal with each other. And the great challenge from Francis was, do we take the joy of the gospel to our work of evangelizing? We're all called to evangelize. How many of us take the joy of the gospel? That's the, the I think, the thrust, the jo to, to reaffirm the joy of the gospel and remind everybody that that's what we're supposed to bring. I think, I happen to, this is me personally now, I happen to believe that that's not easy because very often to go out to those, do those things, is a cross. Because most of us avoid wanting to say things to people that might offend them. So instead of saying some of the things we should, we keep it to ourselves, and we're not doing that. Because to do that and take a joy, I think is hard for all of us. So this is my encouragement to you, but here's my question. I mean, this is the, this is the way, this is the way, Morning. Good morning. Good morning. Sorry we were late. That's okay. We went to the wrong door. I'm I'm not gonna go back over, but you might listen online to pick it up because okay. it's a it's a sort of introductory note, but it's to me it's an important one. Here's my question. We've just been reading a book in which a family is almost literally going to hell. The family's in complete collapse. 
the disorder is so pervasive, and it's, at least for me, it was painful to watch it everywhere. When, when we got to the Quentin episode and I asked Suzanne what her sp- response was, she said she grieved for Quentin. How can you not grieve for him? And yet, everything he's doing is going to hell. I mean, the problem that we face, um, because none of us wants to see another person go to hell, when very often they do. Quite, I, we, when we were doing Dante together, almost everybody in hell was Catholic. And Christ says, there will be lots of people going, Christ, 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 and I will have nothing to do with them. So we know being Catholic isn't an immunity. The Catholics often go to hell. And we've got to take seriously the things we've been asked to do. Because when we play loose with those things, we're, we're jeopardizing our own hands. Father Flynn you know, goes on and on. So here's my question. Did anybody, and, and you can see how it's tangential, did anybody say anything to the Compson family or any of their members at all, so far as we know? The sheriff clearly knows about it because he's talking with Jason. Earl knows about it. This is a very respectable town. Did anybody ever say anything to any of those people that would have helped? And, and, and that, that's why I'm right. How much are we implicated in what goes on around us because we're not evangelizing? The whole call of the church since Francis stepped into it was get out of the church and go do those things that are not comfortable. Are we doing it? And I'm looking at this story and thinking, holy cow, look at what's happening. Did anybody, is anybody saying anything? And you know we've got this respectable town. Earl knows about it. The sheriff knows about it. How many other people know about it? We don't know. Now, obviously, this is tangential to the story. It's not. But it raises a question for me. In the reading of these stories, is anything happening to us that's helping us go out to answer this call? It's a serious thing for me, because I, you know, I do not want to be here as a literature. Literature is my field. But as a, I'm, I'm in the role of a catechist. I, I cannot tell you how uncomfortable I am to be here. I, I, I don't belong to it. I'm a literature teacher. But here it is. So we've got a dark example of one of the things that I'm assuming so many of us live with. I just, Father's words, you know, when he said, I suggest you go, I want to make that stronger. I urge, urge, urge everybody to take this stuff and live it in our families. In our families, we're so often, it's hard and out. Okay, did you, sorry, go ahead. I, I wanted to say, and I don't know if this, okay, what's going on in today's society that we see, people didn't speak up. Yes. So look what's yes. going on. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. In every one of the major issues, how many Catholics were putting their lives on the line to speak out against it? Right from the beginning on every one of these. Or Protestants. I mean, where are we doing? And by the way, one of the things I'm most looking forward to, when we get to the trilogy, guess what? Guess what? The trilogy's about, a, you, we've read, go down Moses, we're doing Santa. The trilogy's about a Southern culture who's too innocent in its dealings with evil. And we're going we're gonna to follow a story in which a Southern culture begins to wake up to take responsibility to answer the evil that's become pervasive in their culture.
i.e. America. That's its central theme. It, it's an America coming out of that Edenic innocence, the self-righteous, you know, self look how good I am, to get out, to, to, put, to have to put themselves away in order to deal with evil. That's the, fun, that's the central theme of the, and think about this, three books. How Faulkner had to mature as a writer in order to get to that. So anyway, I just want to throw that out. I know that this is sort of outside the text, but it, it, it relates to it. Because when I look at this Compson family, I just think, my good God, we're watching a family go to hell. Where were people saying things that nobody would have liked to have heard that would have helped them? How often do we, do, do we speak up the way we should when, when we're in the presence of things that aren't going well? That's just a, a question. But you guys don't have to raise your hands. You know that. Just a comment. I just think we have to be discreet. And when you do evangelize or go out, you have to be careful not to get into other people's business when you are not wanted. So I think we have to respect people's privacy and desire for it. So we can't always speak up. At least that's been our experience when it's, you're not wanted. People don't speak up when it doesn't affect them directly. I just use the example of the Vietnam War. You know, it was on TV recently, the Ken Burns thing. And, you know, we got the same situation. We got a stupid war that's going on 15 years, what have you, and nobody's protesting because why? There's no draft. It doesn't affect right. all the families like, like the draft did. Yeah. It only affects a tiny, small percentage of the population. Yeah. So there's no, no real protest or discussion. Yeah. I think, Mike, wait, I really don't want to, I don't want to turn this into a... No, I just want to say, yeah. I just want to say one thing to, in response to what you said, Linda. <clears throat> it was interesting in the um, St. Francis stuff that I gave you this morning. Um, he refers to, if there's somebody who has offended you, or somebody that you're upset with or worried about for whatever reason that you might speak with them. And um, you can't do it for whatever reason. Praying for them mm -hmm. is an act of evangelization. So there's always something we can do, even if it's not you know, confrontation. Yeah. Um, to me, the harder, I mean, it's a, um, what Linda was talking about, such a delicate thing because um, Christ asked us to be his friends, to love as, to love as he does, I mean, um, and that means loving enemies. And it also means risking saying things that people aren't going to like anyway. I mean, the saints are all, I mean, so many of them are martyred because, you know, they're saying things that, so, I mean, very often what we're asked to do is going to be the sort of thing that is going to offend somebody. I mean, that's, and that's, that's why it's so hard. And the, the question is, can, can we muster? Can, can, and, and my concern is, do we pray for ourselves to have the courage and the spirit in which to do that? Because so often we do it in the wrong spirit, and then we regret it. But, but we're asked to do it even when people are not going to like us, or we'll maybe even offended by it. Um, that's the call to Christ. And it seems to me one of the things that's going on in this story that so troubles me is nobody said anything. 
<coughs> and we're watching the effects of it. And wait, if this is if this is contemporary, and I believe it is, then we're witnessing something that's going. It's not just the war. It's it's local. It's domestic. It's in our own families. That we're not even doing the things in our own families that we should. I mean, Father keeps. I, I think Father's knows this, that the real missionary work in our church is, is not so much, you know, third world countries. Although clearly it is, because so often the, some of the best ministers come from third world countries to America. The the great ministries in our country is in our own families. Um, we're not even doing what we should do locally, let alone what's going on in the world. Um, Anyway, I just wanted to encourage everybody because so many of the stories that we're going to read are, are about us in our time and they're not explicitly religious, some of them, and, it, and yet they're all showing us ourselves. What are we doing about it? You know, it's just, uh, anyway, let me just leave that with you, okay? It's, it's sort of tangential, but it's, it's in the context of what we're doing catechetically, so if you would please take that seriously. I've got one more thing to do before I start in the stories. Stefani asked me a question last week, um, and we never got back to it, and I remembered it afterwards, and I was sorry. Um, and let me just take a minute with it, and if I don't answer it, I'll come back with a question, okay? I was, before we started the class, I was asking, some, I think it was Quentin, and how you all found him because it's a sad story to read, as you all know. And um, she, she said, I mean, I hope I'm, if I'm misquoting, correct me, okay, but she, she was saying, expressing her belief that she, she said she, he seemed to feel a lot of shame or guilt or something like that. And I was puzzling over that because I, I couldn't recall anything in his inner consciousness, because you know we're taken into his mind, that gave any indication that he was consciously aware of a shame or a guilt. If he was, it wasn't expressed that I could remember. I think he's humiliated at his defeats, but I don't ever see him reflecting on them in a way that says, I feel ashamed or, you know. Um, and, and one of the things we had to struggle with is his character because he, he holds up all these ideals, these chivalric ideals, you know, and yet he fails to live up to them everywhere. Um, and so it was a serious question. One of the things I didn't do that I promised I'd do, which is why I'm coming back to it, is make a distinction between shame and guilt, or at least try. I've, I've not given this a lot of thought, but I think it's at least we're thinking about the differences between the two. Because making distinctions is really important for us. I don't think we make them enough. Shame, I would say, is more social or public in nature. And I'm open to disagreements here, so, but, I, but I want to respond because it was a serious question on your part. Shame, I think, is more social in its nature. We feel shame, I think, in the context of feeling that we've let somebody down you know, that we didn't live up. So it's hard for me to believe that Quentin doesn't carry it, but I don't remember his expressing it, or it's being expressed in his consciousness. Guilt, I think, I think um, has to do more with sin that's intrinsic to our nature, so that when we commit a sin, 
we can cover it up, you know, we can deny it, um, push it into uh, the recesses of our consciousness. But I think guilt is what we feel when we've committed a wrong that goes against our nature. If we sin against God or each other, or we've done something that's wrong. Um, anyway, I would start basically, I mean, that may be too simple, but at least it's a starting point. And with respect to either one of them, I, I, I can't remember um, any expression of them in Quentin's character, although I believe, reading him, that shame is a deep part of something, even if he doesn't seem to express it. But wait, wait, one second. Did you, have, do you want to comment, because you were the one that raised the question. Yeah. You know, it just, that he kept going back in his head, saying, Father, I have committed incest. Mm -hmm. So just the fact that he kept going back to that made me seem like he was. Let me ask you this about that phrase. Do you think when he goes to his father to say, I've committed incest with my sister, that yeah. he says that in the sense of a confessional, the way we would if we went to confession and and said to a priest, I've committed, or is he saying it romantically idealizing it because it's a way of covering up his sister's sin? Is he, when he says, I've committed incest, is, what's, is the motive, what's underneath that, a shame, like he's confessing, or from yet another perspective, he's, he's trying to idealize something to cover it up, because he does the same thing when he says to Caddy, when, he's, when he wants to take the life of both of them, that if they could only go to hell together, he would be happy. So he's like romanticizing her? I, that's my reading of that passage. I don't see a shame in it. I see him doing what he tends to do with everything. He, I mean, that's a, your word is a perfect word. He romanticizes everything. He t tends to idealize it, and so he doesn't see things the way they are. He keeps doing what he does because he's been, I mean, partly he's struggling against a culture for whom that ideal has no reality anymore, and it's a distressing thing for him. But I don't see any shame when he speaks to his father then. It seems to me he's, I mean, romanticizing is the perfect word for it. But I can't see how that would fix the, the shame. I mean, I mean, how would, if, if his father had said, fine, well, that's what we're going to go with. <laughs> right. I, I mean, how... To but me, you know the father's too cynical to do that. <laughs> but, I mean, that, to me, that would be worse than the fact that, you know, she was pregnant out of wedlock. I, I agree. Mean, I, I, don't, I kind of felt the same about the shame. I I think, I mean, if you watch it, I mean, what do you, how, how in the world can anybody who cares about an, a noble ideal, and as noble as chivalry, believe that he's doing a chivalric act when he says, I committed incest with my sister? I mean, that's how perverse it's become in him. Because there's, I mean, how, how is killing the two of them and going to hell, um, a realization of that ideal. I mean, every one of his gestures becomes perverse at some point and almost contrary to the spirit of the ideal as we know it. So, so once again, I don't see a shame. I see a, a perverse irony that it means so much to him he will go to any length. And there's not a religious sense. Going to hell is 
not something he wants to avoid. If that gives him a means of escaping, he'll do it. It's become so perverted. And remember, one of the things I said before, I think one of the things that's happening in the modern world is that chivalric ideal that we inherited from the Middle Ages, it, it's, we've learned to see that there was an element of self-love, of ego, of a vanity hidden behind it. How much of the night when he was trying to do all this stuff for his beloved was really for himself? And how much of the woman being loved and adored by a man was for herself. I mean, the modern world has sort of uncovered that and, and, and raised these questions. How much of what motivated that romantic, that chivalric ideal had something dark in it? it was, um, <clears throat> that, that is, that, that you, you, they did reward, they did things expecting a reward. That he would get something back from the beloved, and the woman would get something from him. So that there was this element of selfishness that was buried in it. And, and you know that for me, one of the major questions I've asked is, take that ideal away, what have we got in the modern world? <laughs> We're in a dark world right now. I feel like it's getting darker and darker. Each week we makes me a little bit nervous. I may not see you guys next week. <laughs> getting pretty dark. Sue, did you have something? I, I did, and I guess it seems when you asked it, the difference between shame and guilt, and we've gone around this, to me, I hope I can say it right, shame is focused on outside oneself. You feel shame because others will see you in a certain way. And, and there's a selfness to that, I know, but, mm -hmm. but it, it originates for me from outside, whereas guilt originates from inside. Mm -hmm. And you've said it, you know, to a sin, but I, I guess that's the, it's the center of control for me. So the chivalry, yeah, I agree completely with what you just said, because it's, it, it affects me, but it affects me partly because of the relationship from outside and how others see me and I behave in a certain way. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, we won't go back to do this, but <laughs> I, I think you should probably be used to this, right? I, we've got to get yeah. to our story this morning, but... Remember, at the very outset of the tradition, the Iliad, the central issue in the Iliad was this sense of honor that men had that was so false. Um, and Achilles is the only one finally to transcend it. And how does he do it? Accepts his death, admits his fault. I mean, right at the center of our tradition, this is this amazing story that gets so close to Christianity. When he admits his fault, Nobody can touch him. I mean, how much of what we do is motivated by fear of what other people will think? If we don't die to that, we'll never be able to do what we're meant to go on to do. And how easy is that? That was the central intuition of the Iliad. And that's at the outset of our tradition. And it lines up with the Old Testament prophets. This is literature. This is prophecy. There it is. When I saw Capacernip, kneel down and I've watched the other athletes kneel, I th there it is, there's the Iliad. And they've all, most of them have capitulated. You know, I mean, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not defending, I, don't, I myself, I don't think it's a good thing. I mean, I think we should, but you can understand it. And the question is, when a, when a person puts himself out there, will he be, here's the crucial question, will he be able to risk everything? How many people today will be willing to risk their jobs to be with Christ? 
in a commercial world. Yeah, but but I, I wonder, really, Don, I really wonder if he has yet. Well, he's suffered a lot. So I know, no, I know that, I know that, I know. But I mean, in the Iliad, we get inside of him. We're we don't know with Kaepernick or so many of these other people what goes on. In, I mean, inside, God knows. But but it raises this question: How many people are willing to do what Achilles did? Because what Achilles did was accept his death and give up everything. That was the condition. In my mind, that's right next to Christ. Give up your life, unless you die to, you know, unless you go to, unless the seed goes to the ground, unless you follow me. <laughs> How many people are willing to, to give up their lives and, and accept death? Because at that point, we, that's the intuition of the alien. At that point, we're free. What can hurt us? What can hurt us then? And that's, I mean, that's a pagan work. 800 years before Christ. Is there anybody in Sound of the Fury? <laughs> We're in the Dizzy section, so I'm, but let me leave it. Is there anybody in the story who gets close to doing it? Let's turn to Sound of the Fury, because we've got, I made a promise to somebody, we were going to get out of here before 11. I'm going to lose my head if I, I don't. <laughs> I've been trying to be better about time, both on Monday nights, and actually I've been getting better. Quick, quick review. The quote, the title of the book is taken from Shakespeare's Macbeth, and you know that they're the words that Macbeth speaks when he learns that his wife <coughs> has just died, and in the next instant, the woods, the Dunsingham woods, are going to move. And up until that point, he believed that he was invulnerable, that he made this um, contract, this agreement with the witches. Um, he's trading off, he's making a trade-off in order, in his mind, to secure the, the throne as it's passed on. And the world starts unraveling. And at this point, we're seeing a world falling apart in Macbeth. Macbeth realizes that every, all these designs, all these plans that he'd made, it's like all of us going into old age thinking, if I do this, 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 and my life is going to be set. <laughs> these are our golden years. Suzanne and I laugh every day. I mean, every day we laugh. You know, whoever made up that phrase should be hung. <laughs> I, will be the, I will be the nooseman. I, I will gladly pull that guy's rope. <laughs> the golden years. God, my... My mind's going, I'm losing my hair, I'm struggling to keep my weight down. <laughs> my wife's going around correcting me out, going, you meant, you meant, you meant. God. <laughs> Where did she go? Um, anyway, the world is falling apart, and um, the story itself is about a family falling into ruins, and we're, we're experiencing it. Um, the family feels like it's under a curse. That's that old biblical Old Testament spiritual character. Um, there are three important governing perspectives. We've gone into this before. The conflict between North and South did not end with the Civil War. We know that because there are two cultures. We, we discovered that with Go Down Moses. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, very much, yeah. We discovered that, if we didn't know it, we discovered in, in Go Down Moses, because you remember that the, the, um, the 
one of the conflicts was between the northern banking interest and the southern agrarian and Kaz and um, Ike were, were carrying on that agon, that conflict, that debate about what to do because Ike renounced his inheritance when the whole nature of the southern world has been a plantation established land. He, he, he acted right in the face of that, went against it in his renunciation, he gave up everything. It was his attempt to put away the sin. We saw it there, we see it here. Um, Quentin goes to um, Harvard. It's in the north, and all the people that he meets, Herbert, Shreve, Gerard, are all products of a banking interest northern culture. And Herbert, in some sense, is the exemplar of it because Herbert's the one who wants to buy everything off. When he visits the South, when he's going to marry Caddy, he, um, he, tr he tries to um, bribe um, Quentin with a job. He's already said he'd give Jason a job. And we know the effects of that because when he learns that Caddy's child is not his child, he divorces her, the child goes home. And it cost Jason his job. And we know from the Jason episode that that's the one thing that defines almost everything he did, that his sister cost him that job. Um, so in Jason, we can already see this money interest mentality finding a place in the South. Um, and and the, one, of the, one of the ironies of, of that resentment, that hatred that um, Jason feels is that he only was offered the job because of Caddy in the first place. He didn't, it's not like he worked to get it. Or, but there's this division. Harvard is an intellectual northern banking interest school. He comes from Jefferson. It's agrarian. It's a communal world. We've talked about that a lot. Moby Dick. Go down Moses. Um, the North is very individualistic. Herbert. You'll learn to get on in the way. This is what you'll do. Herbert does everything he can to increase his own wealth to be successful. The South has always been communitarian. It's, it's far more communal, agrarian in its spirit and its nature. The South has a sense of a we. They have an identity with the land. So we've gone into that a lot. It's still present in this book. Um, we. The, the plot unfolds in such a way that we can actually mark the change from an old world to a new. Damity's death marks the death of that ideal of the lady. She looks back to that world. The mother, Carolyn Compson, thinks of herself as being a lady, although we know that she couldn't be farther away from her. But Damity's death represents the death of that old way. Um, Caddy's running off in promiscuity and um, Quentin's promiscuity, her daughter, marks this change. Um, and I, we talked about this last time, that if you look at Plato's, remember Plato's um, um, presentation of the nature of the soul, the three faculties, that the soul had three faculties, a, a faculty of reason a, and a faculty of appetitiveness, of eros, eros. Eros itself took two forms. So there's the rational in man, the erotic, the appetitive, the desiring, wanting thing. The desiring part took two forms. One of them was spiritedness, thumos. We went through this, thumos, anger. It's the love of noble things that makes us anger when they're threatened. Beauty, honor, truth, 
goodness, all those things. The, the very first book in our tr civilization is about anger. The anger of Achilles. Why? Because he was dishonored. He loved honor, the goodness enough, that this dignity that man has, that when somebody treats us in a way that, in, that offends that honor, we get angry. The appetitive is the same eros, but it's directed towards physical things, right? So th that's Plato's presentation of the soul. The rational and the appetitive. The appetitive takes two forms. It's eros directed towards the noble things, the transcendent things we can say, and the appetitive, the erotic directed towards physical things, physical pleasure. Jason is a figure of reason. He lives entirely in his head. Quentin is spirited. He loves this noble ideal and everything he does fails it. Benji lives, I mean, he's rooted in his appetites. It just defines him. The great irony is none of these things come together. They're not integrated. So the, if the, one of the problems of the human soul is to integrate these, remember I've been saying from the beginning, the great challenge we have always is to bring reason and law together with love, eros. Those two things, the, the, one of the, how to order our loves, and we can't order them without knowing our nature, the law of our nature, those things that are given to us. They're in us, they're inherent, they're written in us. The great struggle is to bring those two things together. Here, they're absolutely isolated, one from another. And the irony, one of the great ironies is, is that at the center of every one of these men is Caddy. They're all defined by their relationship to a woman. Now here's the great problem, if you look at it in these terms, it's just an overwhelmingly dark problem. Each one of these men is isolated. You can't say they're integrating their souls at all. Every one of them is defined by her. Take away the honor code, the chivalric code, what, do you, what does the man live for? That's one of the questions I think the, I mean, we, we can ask coming out of the book. When that's gone, what does a man live for? Herbert? Gerard, Shreve, money, wealth, prestige. Take the honor code away. For a woman, what does she live for? When there's no longer any reason for being a lady, what happens to a woman in our culture? So the, 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 the plight that we're left with at the end of this book is a pretty dark one. And we're on the modern world. When you take away those traditional values that, define, that had defined our culture for such a long time, then what? This is the world we're in. And, and just to go back, this is the world Francis is asking us to evangelize. Sorry, I had to sneak that in. <laughs> okay. The Jason section, I don't want to go over it except to remind you. Um, remember, each section has its own mode, and I. I I asked that question last week. I think I had right that Jason, more than any other figure, is in his own head. And I kept referring, I, I read those passages where he says, um, like I says, like I says. And he goes, I says, I says, I says. That's an idiomatic way that belongs to a countrified folk who's describing a story he's telling to somebody else. Like I says, um, I says, I says, I says. And I said, you're saying that when you're saying something to somebody, I says to somebody, yeah. I mean, you can't turn a page and not see sentences beginning with I says, I says. 
I think, and, and that's another way of illustrating what Faulkner's done and how remarkable it is. Benji's got his own idiom, his own language. It's peculiar to him. Clinton has his. So does Jason. How did an artist manage to get in and so clearly delineate everything that's individualistic about each person? They're so unique. But one of the, one of the grim ironies of that Jason section is we're, it's just another way of reinforcing, if we look at the mode by which the story unfolds, um, that it's just another way of showing how isolated he is. Who's he telling the story to? There's nobody there. It's a way of just acting as if he's talking with somebody else when he's not, and it's just another evidence, I think, of his infernal condition. It's a way of justifying himself in his own mind. Um, sorry? He's talking to himself. Yeah. But he's acting like he's, you, the idiom is the idiom used when you're talking to somebody. And that's the irony because there's nobody there. So it's just another way of seeing how isolated he is as a man. He cannot make, will not make a connection with anybody else. So if we look at each one of these characters, um, the last thing that we can say about any of them is that they love. There's no union. Quentin's relationship to Caddy's perverse. So is Quint, um, Jason. Benji is, 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 to me, is as close, but it's, he almost has no will in it. I mean, he's, he's stuck in a you know, way of being, even though it's in, in itself, there's something really good to say about him. He's the one that's closest to having any real good. If we looked at each one of the plots, last, last note on this, if we look at each one of the plots, we can describe them in terms of something gone wrong with desire. If we look at the Benji plot, um, it, it's Benji always desiring, waiting, longing for Caddy. It's a desire that will never be fulfilled. Ten years after he, she's left, he's still going out to the gate. We talked about this the first time. It's as if there's this deep longing to be with her and to find words. And there's no words to describe what he feels if it's a longing. I mean, this family doesn't have it. This culture doesn't have it. The closest we can get to it is I love you, I think. I, you know that my own feeling about it is that it even goes deeper than that. It's, it's a question in me when he looks for Caddy and when he looks for the women. It, the image I gave you was the, the deer panting for water, that image in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. It's like this longing that we have to enter into the intimacy of the Trinity. And remember, in the Trinity, there's no need each God is complete in himself, Father, Son, Holy. They're, they're one God, so the union between them is perfect. It's love shared. I think that's the love we're all called to. If we're made in God's image, that's what we all long for. There's this profound longing to enter into that communion with another that's creative. That's the nature of our being. We want to share with this love that is absolutely complete and intimate sharing with another that's creative because we're a part of a creative process. How does Benji find words for that? I think there's this deep longing, this desire that will never be satisfied. In Quentin, if you look at the Quentin plot, it's a, it's a desire for Caddy that's been frustrated or perverted. It takes this twisted form finally so that everything he does is a preparation for death. He lives in despair. He will never fulfill that love.
The Jason episode, I suggest, is desire turned towards vengeance. He, he, he thinks he deserves more than he gets, and he wants to hurt. He wants to get back everywhere. The one thing that is central to that whole action is Caddy. He hates her. He wants to do her harm. The two most meaningful, I mean, he gets into fights always with Caddy. He has nothing. He can't help anybody. He can only fault them or blame them. He puts them down. He's been wounded. He will not let go of his wounds. He points a finger, accuses, blames. Um, and never forgives. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned that. The, the one thing lacking, I mean, the, the constant, I said, it's, I think it's a part of that Old Testament, dark Calvinistic <coughs> view that people are either saved or damned, and they have no sense of a merciful God that forgives. You never see a forgiving aspect, I can't, or a gesture in that family. Um, where was I going to Jason? Um, oh, the two of the episodes that stand out are the moment when he tells Caddy he will bring Quentin by and he just flashes by. That's intended to wound. And when he takes the two tickets at the end and he dangles them you know, in front of Lester and says, you want them giving me a He knows Lester doesn't have a nickel. That's just tormenting. It's like a little kid torturing cats or he, he just wants to hurt people. So all the way through the Jason episode, we see a man who, who who believes he should have been given more and resents the world. Everything about the world, he can only blame. And so there is in him a wanting to wound. So we see three, three different ways the desire is worked out and frustrated. And it led me to, I mean, it leads to our question, is Christ present? If, if he is where? That's where we work. Okay? Let me look at the dizzy just quickly now. So that's just pulling us together to get to the, uh, the Dilsey episode. What's, I hope you have, hold, let me, I hope I didn't just hang, I don't know what's going on in the door. Sorry. No, 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 no. Okay, Dilsey episode. Let's see if I can do this really quickly. The Dilsey episode, and one of the most important things about it, you know that when we shift from the first three sections to the Dilsey, we shift modes. That in sections one, two, and three, we're in what we can call a stream of consciousness. Um, we're inside the person. And in each case, I think it's really important to see that person is not narrating. Benji's not, Benji's incapable of narrating. Their consciousness is being narrated. So in, in one sense, this is close to drama. The, 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 the poet is completely outside, allowing the character to unfold himself, whatever's inside that person's mind. Benji can't narrate, he can't speak. So we're getting, and I raised this question, if that wasn't an illustration of the logos that inside the human consciousness is this inclination towards words, articulation, to, that all of us want to speak, you know, to give a word to things. Um, each one of the f first three sections is presented from inside the person's consciousness. 
So we keep moving in and out of the world. We get exterior events, the golfers golfing, um, Quentin meeting with the deacon or, you know, the three kids. So we, we keep shifting back and forth from what's inside to what's outside. In the Dilsey section, we are completely outside. It's third person detached, objective. We are presented the world outside. Um, so almost nothing of what we're presented um, can take the form of prejudice. It's not colored by an inner consciousness. It's the world as it is. Um, and I suppose we should ask why, but let me wait on that until we get through it and then, because I've got some major questions I, I want to solve to deal with. Um, Dilsey steps outside of her house. <laughs> it's really lovely. She steps outside of her house in this dress. It's Easter morning. She's gone in this very colorful dress. She looks out, it's got this light rain, this light drizzle, and she goes back on and puts on her um, work clothes. Um, she will sing when she comes to the Compson house. And you know that Luster goes into the basement and tries to finger, because he was so fascinated at the show guy who could do this twanging that he wanted to come home and do it himself. So both characters, Dilsey and Luster, are the only two characters that I can recall who have music in their souls. Dilsey will sing. When she comes home, she will sing. Luster wants to create this music. She comes out with this color. When, when Franny joins her later on the way to church, Franny is described as being dressed in these beautiful colors. Look at Linda's colors right now. The, <laughs> the, um, I think what's going on with Dilsey is that there's a moment of exaltation. She's going to, she, because otherwise, why should she go back inside and change into her? It's as if she wants to feel the joy of Easter. So she, she puts on her church clothes, comes out for a moment. It's like a moment of exaltation. She wants to enjoy that moment. That's all. Because how often does she get those moments? I mean, this is my reading. I may be wrong in this, but otherwise I can't explain it. But it's, she, she's a slave. She slaves forever. It's like for a moment... She wants to be part of the glory of Easter. She goes back in and puts on her clothes. She starts scolding Lester, trying to get him up to take care of Benji. You've all read it, so I don't need to go into it in detail. Finally, Jason comes down, and um, Carolyn comes down, and Jason's grousing because the window is broken, and um, his mother makes this comment to the effect that it, it has the appearance of somebody breaking into the house. We already had a, if you were reading closely, it, it's as if slowly something's starting to come to Jason, and finally when his mom says that, he's alarmed. He, he rushes upstairs, almost knocks people over, and he tries to get into Quentin's room. He comes down and gets the keys and almost knocks his mom over. Um, she doesn't want him to have the keys because she's possessive about them, and, and he... And he yanks the keys away from her and says something like, get away, you fool, you old fool. That's his mom. He's so distraught, finally gets the keys and goes up and opens the door to discover that the room is empty. He runs into his room and he finds that his locks box has been, that was hidden away, has been opened and all the money that he's been stealing from Caddy, who was intended for Quentin, is gone. He calls the police tells the sheriff he's on his way because he, 
he believes that Caddy and the man with the red tie are on the way to the next town for the show, and he wants the sheriff to get going. Um, now, during that episode, Dilsey takes Luster and Benji and meets with Franny, her daughter, and the four of them go to church. And um, on this particular Sunday, it's Easter Sunday, the church is, um, has a visitor, a visiting priest, who gives this sermon. Um, and I want to come to it in a minute. Um, it, the sermon puts Dilsey into tears. She's weeping. Luster is wrapped, or not Luster, Benji is wrapped. After the sermon they leave, she's still in tears. They go home and she fixes a meal. The, the uh, focus shifts to Jason with the sheriff and the sheriff will have nothing to do with him, tells him he's, he believes that Jason was partly responsible for Caddy's running away, that um, he suspects that the stealing of the money, and we get the sense that more than a few people knew about this in town. So it's not confined to the sheriff because Earl had some knowledge and sheriff and the sheriff's not inclined to help him and more he doesn't have enough ev evidence. He says if that's all the evidence I can't do anything. Jason goes away furious. He, he imagines getting this army of government people back to take care of the sheriff because he's so self-righteous in believing, you know, I've been offended, I've been wrong, this is the sheriff, he should do his duty. So like a put-upon person, like the person he is, he magnifies everything. He makes it worse than it is. The sheriff won't do anything, and so he's going to take it into his own hands. He runs off to Mottstown, and, and you know what happens. He, he goes into this one boxcar expecting to find the couple and attacks this guy, and after the guy gets up, he, he, he picks up a hatchet and starts chasing Jason. I think the owner of the moving troop saves him and tells him to get out, but the couple isn't there, that he runs a respectable show, and, um, and Jason is rendered helpless. Now, this is interesting because I, I, I don't, if you remember that one passage earlier, Faulkner describes Carolyn as being helpless, and you know that that's the way she is anyway, that, um, she always wants to see herself as a victim and, and can't do something on her own. She complains if she has to go get the water bottle. At the very end of the book, when Dilsey's in the room, Dilsey asks if she can do anything. She asks her to hand her the book. The book's on the edge of the bed. She couldn't even reach down to, I mean, that's one of the conditions of dependency, that if you're in a slave culture, you create this dependency on the people you're serving. I mean, it's, it, we're watching a family collapse because it can't do anything for itself anymore. Um, Jason is finally helpless, and he's the one who prides himself in taking care of the family. He's rendered absolutely helpless. He's lost all of his money, has no money, and he can't drive himself home. He has to hire somebody. He's so overcome with the fumes and so shaking by the event. He, he cannot do what he needs to do for himself. So this black guy drives him home, and then the story ends, you know, with Luster taking Benji to the cemetery. But instead of going around the statue on the right, they go to the left, and Benji goes nuts. Jason arrives at that point. He jumps out of the car and goes and pushes Luster aside. I've got to read this last line because it's... Because in some sense, it's... I think it's an indictment of the whole... On the very last two pages, the bottom of 320, 
Ven's voice roared and roared. Queenie moved again. Her feet began to clop, clop steadily again, and at once Ben hushed. Luster looked quickly back over his shoulder, then he drove on. The broken flower drooped over Ben's fist, and his eyes were empty and blue and serene again as cornice and facades flowed smoothly once more from left to right, post and tree, window and doorway and signboard, each in its ordered place. That's a lovely rhythmic sentence. It's, it's, it's Faulkner writing prose at its best, or at its clearest, because I know you know sometimes it's hard to... But to me, it's, it's one of the grimmest ironies of the whole book, because what he's describing is the way Dante would have described hell. Everything in its ordered place, rigidly fixed. If it's not that way, Benji would go nuts. It's, it's an infernal condition. And I think it's just a reminder of what we've been witnessing all along, that for the father, for the mother, for um, certainly for Benji, Quentin, and Jason, they lived in these rigidly fixed worlds. It's an infernal condition. In one, in one sense, it's a, it's a description of modern man, the condition that we choose to live in. Okay, let me just quickly go through some of the lines, um, and then I've got some questions to ask. Page. You know that Dilsey comes out in her dress. Um, she, she goes up to try to help Carolyn, who spends the morning complaining. Then they all come down, and, then, and it's the mother's remark that sends Jason off. Um, turn to page 279. This to me is one of the saddest exchanges in the whole of 278, 279. Bottom of 278. They heard her mounting the stairs. They heard her a long while on the stairs. You've got a prize set of servants, Jason said. He helped his mother and helped himself to food. Did you ever have one that was worth killing? I, I, I can't remember a line more full of disdain in my entire life. Is a person worth killing? Did you ever, I mean, a person's not even worth being a person in Jason's mind. It's just a horrible, horrible expression of the disdain that he has for everything around him. That, another way to put this, as Christ would say, there's a murder in him. He wants to see people hurt. Did you ever have one that was worth killing? You must have had some before I was big enough to remember. I have to humor them, she says, go down. A fine pigsty we live in too, Jason said. He can find nothing good in the world. I know you blame me, Mrs. Constance said, for letting them go off to church today. Go where, Jason said. Hasn't that damn show left yet? To church, Mrs. Constance said. The darkies are having a special Easter service. I promised Dilsey two weeks ago that they could get off, which means we'll eat cold dinner. Um, Going down. I know it's my fault, Mrs. Compson said. I know you blame me. For what? You never resurrected Christ, did you? It's a blasphemous statement. Um, this is a family that doesn't ask its kids to go to church. Big surprise. She's apologizing for letting the kids go off to church that day. She's apologizing. Um, that is, in some indirect sense, she's blaming God. It reminds me, I don't know if you, you guys here in the, in the uh, 
Dante's Commedia. Remember in the Inferno, the very first level of the act of sin's lust, Francisca, remember when she said to Dante, if, if, if the Lord of the universe were friends to us, i.e. they're not, she was blaming God for her sin. There's a lot of that in Carolyn and, um, and Jason. Um, I know you blame me for letting them go off to church, that it's a wrong thing to do. This is when things turn dark and he, the mother makes that comment and he runs upstairs. Um, 283, um, the top of the page. You come in on laid down, now she said, I find in 10 minutes. That's Dilsey trying to calm Carolyn. Mrs. Compson shook her off. Find the note, she said. Quentin left a note when he did it. All right, Dilsey said, I'll find it. You come on. What's her first assumption? She committed suicide. First thought, uh, I mean, to assume the worst. Um, they don't find it, um, and Dilsey has to calm her down later. But now I want to I look at this 294, what happens at church. Is everything all right, Doc? Hmm? Yes, um, they get into church, and this minister um, begins his homily on page 294 in a sort of educated white um, inflection and spirit. And it has absolutely no effect. So he immediately changes and slips into a black dialogue. In 194, or 294, brethren and sister, and he said it again, the preacher removed his arm and he began to walk back and forth before the desk, his hands clasped behind him. A meager figure hunched over itself like that of one long immured in striving with the implacable earth. I got the recollection in the blood of the Lamb. He trampled steadily back and forth. Go down. The congregation seemed to watch with its own eyes while the, by the voice consumed him. It's here that he's making a change. Until he was nothing and they were nothing and there was not even a voice but instead their hearts were speaking to one another enchanting measures beyond the need for words so that when he came to rest against the reading desk his monkey face lifted in his whole attitude that of a serene tortured crucifix that transcended its shabbiness and insignificance and made it of no moment he absolutely gets rid of himself this is a moment of complete self-effacement he's gone but the effect of what he does is to unify this whole congregation for the first time in this book people are united they come together, and it's by a shared spirit. We've not seen it anywhere. The closest that I can remember was Caddy when she bends down, when Benji's three, and she says, let me in. You know, she's, I mean, there's that wonderful effort to help her three-year-old brother unsnag her. Um, he, it's complete self-effacement. He gets rid of himself. There's nothing of the self in the way, and it's as if he becomes an instrument for pulling everybody together on a cross, suffering, in joy. Um, face lifted in his whole attitude, that of a serene, tortured crucifix that transcended its shabbiness and insignificance and made it of no moment. A long moaning expulsion of breath rose from them and a woman's single soprano. And it's interesting, somebody has to speak. And it's one of them going, yes, Jesus. And we will hear this refrain again and again, yes, Jesus. Brethren, the minister said in a harsh whisper without moving, Yes, Jesus, the woman's voice said, hushed again. 
Now, notice the change. Brethren and sistren. I got the recollection and the blood of the lamb. They did, they did not mark just when his intonation, his pronunciation became negroid. They just sat swaying a little in their seats as the voice took them into itself. It's the spirit I don't know if accommodating a cultural difference. Is that clear? When he tried to speak like a white guy five minutes earlier, it missed him. Now he's one of them and he's speaking and a spirit enters him and it becomes the means of unifying everybody. When the long cold, oh, I tell you brethren, when the long colds, I see the light and I see the word, poor sinner, they passed away in Egypt, the swing and chariots, the generation passed away. Was a rich man, where is he now, O brethren? Was a poor man, where he now, O sistren, O tells you, if you ain't got the milk and the dew of the old salvation when the long cold years rolls away. Yes, Jesus. I tells you, okay, first part of the sermon, he talks about Egypt when the Jews were in exile. There was a rich man. Where is he now? Was a poor man. Where is he? That have any relevance to the story? Jason had all this money. The Compsons were a wealthy aristocratic family. Gone. All of it. So it speaks directly to what's going on. And we know, we, this is, God, this is stunning to me. We know that when the, when, this is stunning. I, Egypt is clearly the South, but it's also America. We saw this in Dante, we saw it in Shakespeare, we've seen it again and again. Egypt, this is Egypt. In Egypt, you get spoiled because you want to be comfortable, you want to be wealthy, you want to have your way, you want to have your will. So you get all that you want, but it makes you incapable of loving. And the irony is, it's all gone. Because you know the Jews left it, they tried to... And a whole generation had to pass away. They were in the desert, one generation. Why? Because there's no way they could have gone, in the, gone into the promised land. They were too spoiled, too used to being, having everything done for them. To go into the promised land meant they had to give themselves up. A whole generation died. So what we're, the homily, or the sermon, indirectly is a light on the story that we've been reading. I tells your brethren and I tells your sister, they come a time, poor sin is saying, let me lay down with the Lord. Let me lay down my load. Then what Jesus is going to say, O brethren, what's he going to say then when you want to go to heaven? O brethren, O sister, is you got the recollection in the blood of the Lamb because I ain't going to load down heaven. This is Christ speaking. Oh, Christ. <laughs> when, when we all come to the gate for our reckoning, the reckoning that every soul is going to have, what's he going to say to you? And Christ's answer is, because I ain't going to load down heaven. <laughs> Sinners are not going to be there. So we get this sense again and again from, this is the first instance of it, but um, um, going over 296, brethren, look at them little children sitting there. Jesus was like that once. His mommy suffered the glory and the pangs. Who's this? I mean, I think it's Dilsey more than anybody else because she's the one who's watched over everybody. He and Mammy suffered the glory and the pang. Sometime maybe she let him at nightfall while the angels singing him to sleep. She held him at nightfall. Maybe she looked out and door and see a Roman police passing. He trampled back and forth, mopping his face. Listen, brethren, I see the day may set into the door with Jesus on her lap, the little Jesus like them children there. 
do little Jesus. I hear the angels singing peaceful songs into glory. I see the closing eyes, sees Mary jump up, sees the soldier's face. We're going to kill, we're going to kill, we're going to kill your little Jesus. I hear the weeping. God, this is um, the Mary um, trying to comfort Jesus to sleep you know, when the murder is just off the borders. I mean, the closest image to that that I can see in the Compton family is Dilsey. We've got images of her singing Benji to sleep, patting him on the back. And she witnesses, she witnesses Benji's castration. She saw Quentin's death. She saw the death of the father. That is, if, if, if remember Christ said, where am I in each of these little ones? We've seen Christ killed again and again and again and again. Is that clear? If Christ is in each one of us? Quentin takes his life. Father drinks himself to death. Quentin, I mean, so what he's describing isn't a stretch. I mean, in some ways it's, it's talking about Egypt and what it does and what happens to Christ. Um, he is the weeping and the lamentation of the poor mommy widow, the salvation and the word of God. Mm-mm. Jesus, little Jesus, and another word. Clearly, when they express that, they're expressing some suffering. It's the grief one feels in feeling what the preacher's saying. I sees, O oh Jesus, O oh sees, and still another without words like bubbles rising in water. Um, go down, I hears the weeping and the crying and the turned away face of God. They done killed Jesus, they done killed my son. Mm-hmm. Jesus, I sees, O oh Jesus. O blind sinner, brethren, I tell you, sister, I says to you, when the Lord did turn his mighty face, say, ain't going to overload heaven. I love that one. I can see the wit of God shut, um, shut his door. I see the whelming flood roll between. I seen the darkness and the death overlasting upon the... So, he's, this is the apocalypse. This is revelation. That the, that the darkness and the ways have overwhelmed and separated out the souls. So he's giving us an image of the final judgment and the weeping and the wailing that goes on. Um, let's see, sorry, what page? Um, 296. 297 towards the top. In the midst of the voices and the hands, Ben sat wrapped in his sweet blue gaze. Dilsey sat bowled up right beside, crying rigidly and quietly in the annealment and the blood of the remembered lamb. She is one with him. As he walked through the bright noon up the sandy road, um, she's still crying. Froney's uh, embarrassed, says to her mother, stop. Um, with all these people, that is, there's these couple, um, Lusser does the same thing. When he goes into town to take Benji, remember, he says, I'm gonna, and the blacks say, what are you doing? He's showing off, and he say, "I'm going to." He says to himself, "I'm going to show them quality." His idea of quality is to live like the whites, and we're aware that that's the last thing in the world you want to do. So there's this envy on the part of some of these blacks to have this life because they're slaves. And Frozy's got something of that here. She says, "Why don't you quit that, Mama? With all these people looking, we'd be passing white folks soon." Dilsey's comment: "I seen the first and the last." Never you mind. That's the, um, she will say that again. She'll say it when she gets home. So let me stop. Um, so I've got a couple of serious questions here to ask. Um, 
It's in a third-person mode. Um, in the, the preacher's sermon, we're taken back um, to the birth of Jesus, to, or, sorry, to the Jews fleeing Egypt, um, the, the grieving that went on, Christ saying that he's not going to overload heaven, the birth of Jesus, an infant, Mary's taking care of him, and then we see the book of Revelation, the, the final judgment. That's all in the preachers. It puts um, Dilsey into tears. It is the one thing that brings that congregation together. For the first time in the book, we actually see people united by the spirit, the spirit. And it's a spirit of, of shared grief. Mm, oh, Jesus. You know that, they, that in terms of passion, they enter into that grieving um, as, a, as a group. Um, and we know they go home, she fixes dinner, and then we shift to all that happens between um, Jason and the, and the sheriff, and, and then uh, Jason and the, and the showman, and, and how the book ends with, with Luster taking the wrong turn and Benji going mad again, and that's where we're left. So a couple of things. Why Easter weekend? Why Easter? Why, why this third person mode? Why Easter weekend? And is Christ present? This is a very dark book. Why, why in the world did Faulkner um, have this story take place over Easter weekend? We know, and he's inverted the days. It begins with Benji, which is Saturday, Easter Eve. We go to Quentin, 10 years earlier. Then we come to Friday, which is the Jason episode, Good Friday. That's the night Christ was crucified. And then the, the Dilsey episode takes place on Sunday. She comes out regaled, you know, in her clothes for a moment. There's this, for me, it's a sort of exaltation of the beauty, the glory of the day. And you know what? She goes to church and puts on her works clothes. And so why did Faulkner do this? Um, why Easter weekend is Christ present? Why the third person? You guys can jump in anywhere, wherever you you're inclined, whatever. I really would like to hear from you guys because <coughs> is this just is this just a dark work or is Christ present, sir? No, it's Easter weekend and Christ is present. And you said in the congregation with that homily, it's the first time the people all come together. So to me, that's like a resurrection. Yeah. That's light. Yeah. That's resurrection. Yeah. 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 After the darkness. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very fitting and becoming for Easter weekend. Yeah. It's curious, lots of critics say they don't think that fourth chapter closes the book, that it's an anomaly, that it doesn't fit. But your words, I thought, were, I mean, a, a good description of why in many ways it does fit. Um, and I don't think he wants to leave you with despair at the end, because you're, you're traveling to the darkness. Yeah. And I don't think you want to be left there. That's that's what Faulkner said in his Nobel Acceptance Prize. That, that his whole life was spent. His word, the, the most famous words, is that we will prevail. That he, he, I can't remember the exact words, but what he was doing was affirming endurance, endurance because, and you know Paul's words, endurance leads to hope. That all of his work was a, um, a testimony to what he called the old verities: hope, trust, faith, friendship. So no matter how dark it gets, I mean, this is Faulkner and his Nobel, 
the most important things were those old truths. I, I can't see him giving into despair. And I, I really believe as a writer that he faced depths of darkness that few writers face to go there where he went and not despair. What else? Anything else? Does that last chapter function as a condemnation of the first three? Faulkner doesn't judge. There's not a, a narrative line that passes a judgment. He lets the characters <laughs> judge themselves. I mean, it's hard to come out of here and, without being aware of how bad some of the characters are. He's, he, you know, he's, he's made it. But we never find him judging. Does that, is that last chapter a judgment on the first three? It seems it's, to me it's a judgment on the reality that the, of what the others see as reality. Because each is looking at the same situation. Dill sees the only one that's giving it to us the way it is. Mm -hmm. So it's not even it's not even a judgment except you see how perverted the others are. I mean, I don't know if that's the right term for that. Mm, locked in how, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, Just. how they can't see the world as it is. So Or the love offered. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That that hope and that love is out there. Yes. But the family is yeah. too far gone, yeah. not able to see it. Yeah. And if you didn't have that would take a lot from me. Dark anyway, word, then you're, you're in the, dis it seems to me there's nothing but despair well, to come out of it. Even for the reader, they're, they're, it's helpful to get what is real because you've now gotten multiple versions yes. of yes. existence. And Isn't that extraordinary yeah. that he did that? It's funny, Faulkner's words on his own novel was that it was his most splendid failure. And yet I guess Suzanne read somewhere something that it was his favorite book. It's an early book. I mean, my, my thought about that is anybody who could do that early in his life, what could he not do to present Benji that way technically, to, you know, to be able to do that, to execute that, the, to have the technical means of doing that and to do it with Quentin and then Jason and then Dilsey to stand outside of it. Um, a, writer, what, a writer who could do that, good God. I mean, how many writers have done that in our... And it came from America. You know, we talked about this with Melville, that something's going on in America that doesn't go on in Europe. What, what, what Melville did and what Hawthorne did and what Faulkner did in the modern world is extraordinary. There's a greater depth of sin that the American writer gets to. There's a greater depth of grace. There's a greater tendency towards violence in our country. There's a greater amplitude of grace given. And the really great writers, American writers, have got it. Well, she says she saw the beginning and then she saw the end. At the beginning you have small children and uh, Mr. Compton and Carolyn and at the end uh, Quentin's dead. Um, Caddy is out of, gone, long gone. Her daughter Quentin is run off with some some guy and mm -hmm. uh, Jason uh, lost all his money. Yes, and, yes, you know. yes. 
She, I mean, it's so true. She's, she's, she's personally experienced and carried within her the decline of a family, the death of it, the beginning and the end. There's only two people that I know of who do that. One is Dilsey, and the other is Faulkner. Um, I think that's one last thing. I mean, you know, this thing that I um, took a few minutes with at the beginning about evangelizing or being called out of the church. Nobody in this family says anything to that Compson family. Nobody in town. It just really bothers me. Nobody. Nobody. It's as if they're all in their private world. And what we see in the Compson family is that private world exemplifying. Um, did, and, and one of the things that seems to me that's going on, it's a, it's a sort of implied theme, is this longing that nobody has answered. It's most poignantly presented, I think, in Benji, this longing for Caddy. He lives his life waiting for her to come to that gate. She's, 20, she's 10 years gone, he still goes out to that gate. When he hears the word Caddy, it's as if he wants to rush to the gate. He lives with this desire. Quentin had this great desire. We have to say of Jason, no matter how bad he is, that he has this desire. It's been perverted. It's all twisted towards vengeance. He wants to hurt people. But this desire that everybody has, has no answer, except in Dilsey in the congregation at the end. Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, the Lamb, I got the recollection and the blood. You know, there, there's a sense of a fulfillment. They have him. So there is this longing for a fulfillment of this love, this desire that all humans have that isn't answered in the family and that is at the end. But I think we're meant to line that up also with words. Benji can't find the words. He wants to say, he wants to say, he can't speak, and yet we get his inner consciousness through words, through language. It's a language he's incapable of speaking. And none of the other characters speak it. it the, the, the words are given. It's their lives are being narrated. So this only comes to us through the words. Does anybody in this book fulfill this longing for a word? To express these words and have it fulfilled in a word? Seems to me the closest we get is what happens with Dilsey at the end, but you can see that that's one of the themes of the book, this longing for something and having the words to speak to it. In that sense, the preacher gets close, but the only one who really does it, I think, is Faulkner. To yeah, because Josie is a weak being. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep, yeah. That there's this longing to see, and words are the means by which we do it. And the ultimate end of that is the word itself. So the, 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 this is Christ present? I, I would say he's present as Logos as words that Faulkner, what's Faulkner's doing is prophetic. He's revealing us to ourselves. It's important that we learn to see ourselves in these people, to have the humility to do that, and to answer it. Faulkner's done it. Now what do we do? Let me leave it with that. Okay? Next week we start the stories. <coughs> we did it. 
I did it. Oh, what time? I said I was going to do it early. I want to hear a good word from you. I want to hear a good word from you. Oh, I forgot. God. Oh, we have to go back. We need another 15 minutes. No. <laughs> Here, okay, let me read it. Can everybody turn there? I'm glad. Thank you, Lynn. I should have. God, here, let's. Good for you. We've got. And I'll still be early. Don't even pull it out. Just listen. Okay. Because next week, I'm going to. The, the big section is next week, and there's going to be a lot to say because Elliot is doing actually amazing things. It'll blow you, it'll blow you away, I think, what he's doing in the first section, or the fifth section. Fourth section. Remember, he's just given us this dark section where we descend. This is a place of disaffection. It's dark. And then we got to go lower. So he's giving us the darkest thing. And then he says, and in these images, the light is going out. The sun is going down. It's a darkness. And all things seem to have reference to us. I think he's asking whether we're, we're not too egotistical all the time. We think everything should be in relationship to us. When the sun goes out, what do things do? Do they point to us? Do they go to us? Because you know when the sunflower moves across, or when the sun moves across the sky, sunflower always follows. So the sun has been the focus, but what happens when the sun goes down? Now symbolically, that's an image for us. Section four. Time and the bell have buried the day. Black clouds carries the sun away. It's getting dark. Will the sunflower turn to us with a clematis stray down, bend to us, tendril and spray, clutch and cling. Shall fingers of you be curled down on us? After the kingfisher's wing has answered light to light and is silent, the light is still at the still point of the turning world. Now I'm going to give a test to everybody when we begin this week. I'm going to ask you what that means. <laughs> Did I make it? 1058. <laughs> That, that is high praise. That is high praise.